12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them a and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of that vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bo Teese. I am on staff here as the downtown coordinator. I am an elder in training here as well, and as well as a biblical counselor in training. And uh, we're so glad that you're here this morning. If you're wondering what is going on beneath us, um, that would be our brothers and sisters in Christ from the Congolesian church who are worshiping right now at the same time as us. So just a little foretaste of that every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be worshiping together in eternity. So today we're going to be looking at the first half of Mark chapter 12. And as I was thinking about this, I really think that there is something deep within all of us that really loves stories that have epic battles where two kingdoms collide. Specifically, and especially after the good guys have been like really beat down and you're unsure if they're going to uh, triumph at all. Think Lord of the Rings, the Marvel movies, any war movies, things like that. And I suspect it's because whether we realize it or not, We are at war between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God every day. And those kingdoms often come into conflict with one another. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. The simmering tension that has been building between the religious leaders and the political leaders of the day is now rising to its full climax as Jesus confronts these leaders for the final time. We're going to see three scenes of different people that represent different ways where we try to build the kingdom of self. Jesus directly confronts each of these views. Uh, He shatters expectations and traditions, and he cements the rage of his opponents who will eventually have him killed. If we're listening carefully, it will also leave us with some warnings today if we have ears to hear. But before we dive into the text, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we admit that we are at war, that we prefer often to build the kingdom of self rather than building your kingdom. I pray that your word today would show us how foolish it is to build the kingdom of self and give us new um, inspiration to build the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the... Before we get into the text, the context is we need to back up a little bit to Mark 11, 33 and 34, where Jesus told his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. 
and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So we are now in the final week of Jesus' life. It's right after the triumphal entry. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders have come up to him, and they are desperate to find a way to trap him so that they can have cause to arrest him and just get him out of the picture once and for all. And as Jason mentioned last week in his sermon, the chief priests, scribes, and elders, they come up to him and they ask Jesus a question. And they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? And Jesus turns the question on them and says, well, I have a question for you. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they think to themselves, they say, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, then why didn't you believe that he was a prophet? If we say he was from man, then, ooh, the people actually believed it was a prophet, and so there's going to be some tension there. So they decide to say, well, we don't know. And then Jesus says, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he launches into the parable that Rebecca read for us. So just to summarize what happens in the parable, a man prepares a vineyard, he plants the vineyard, he He sets uh, tenants over it and then goes to another country. When the time for the harvest comes, he sends servants to collect a little bit of that harvest. And they treat the servants worse and worse, eventually kill them. So the owner says, I will send my beloved son. Surely they will treat him kindly. And they think, ooh, if we can just get him out of the way, then the inheritance will be ours. So they kill him. Faulty thinking on their part. But then Jesus turns the question on them and says, what do you think is going to happen to these tenants? They will be destroyed and the kingdom will be given to others. So there's a couple things that we need to note here. Um, At the end, in verse 12, it says that the chief prescribes and elders perceived that the parable was about them. And there's good reason for that, because if you look at Isaiah 5, there is quite a similar story about a vineyard of the Lord. Isaiah 5 says, Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Sound a little bit familiar to our parable for today? And later in this section, he mentions that the vineyard is the people of Israel and that the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And then he also says that Israel is going to be judged because it's not producing the fruit that he planted. It's producing these wild and worthless and stinky grapes that are not good for anything. So you should know that a lot of Jesus' parables and his stories are strongly influenced by the Old Testament. Um, it's given me a new appreciation for the Old Testament as I've made this realization. There's, this teaching is just full of allusions, and especially to Isaiah. We should also note that the, the phrase beloved son should really stick out in our ears because that's the third time that we've seen that phrase in the book of Mark. The first at Jesus' baptism and the second at the transfiguration uh, a couple weeks ago. So, what does the parable mean? So you can see who all of the players are up on the screen there. But essentially, God has a plan and a design for his his people and his kingdom. He set stewards over his people, and his people strayed from his purpose for them, either with the cooperation or ignorance of the stewards that were set over them. And so, time and time again, he sent prophets to warn them and to get them back on track. 
And they either ignored, harmed, or killed the prophets that were sent. And Jesus is telling us that the beloved son, who is him, is now going to be the next in the line of many prophets who were ignored or harmed or killed by the the leaders. And so what is going to happen to the people? They're going to be destroyed. These leaders are going to be destroyed. The vineyard is going to be taken away from them and given to others. Now, what others is it going to be given away to? In Matthew, in the parallel passage, it says that it is going to be given to a people who will produce the fruit of the kingdom. Now, what this does not mean is the idea of replacement theology where Israel has been totally rejected and now the church is the recipient of all of God's promise. That's not what this passage is saying. Because the vineyard is not the one that is rejected in this story. It's the tenants and the leaders that are rejected. What it's referring to actually is what the Apostle Paul eventually refers to as a grafting in, whereby the Gentiles are now grafted into God's promises for his people. We should also note that Jesus doesn't only ever have harsh words for these religious leaders because he wants them to repent and turn so that they can be a part of the kingdom of God. He laments over Jerusalem and their inability or their refusal to see God's plan. In Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You see, the religious leaders may have believed that they were building God's kingdom and that they were an integral part to building God's kingdom, but they were trying to build it to their own design and vision. And when you are building the kingdom of God according to your own design and vision, you're not actually building the kingdom of God. You are building your own kingdom. So, this way of viewing the kingdom has a mindset that says, my way is best. And we do this in small ways, like when I'm driving and I just wish that the traffic would part so that I can drive right through and not have to worry and just have everybody get out of my way. And that would be funny if it weren't so sad, but we also do this in bigger ways that we wouldn't necessarily say. We say, okay, God, I know that you're, you're busy. You've got a lot going on here. So I'm going to take care of all of the planning and I'm going to build the kingdom and I'll take care of all the details. You don't have to worry about it at all. And when I'm ready, I will come to you and have you bless my kingdom. The result of building this kingdom is not going to be good. If you're successful in building your kingdom, it's just going to lead to pride, which is eventually going to lead to even a bigger conflict and collision with God's kingdom. And if things fall apart, it's going to lead you to anxiety as you realize that you cannot control everything. So the main idea here from this scene is that God's kingdom building is going to happen. It's not going to be thwarted no matter what. And it does not depend on any religious leader or any group of people to be accomplished. He doesn't need any of us to build his kingdom. But he chooses to use us as just a small part of building that kingdom. There's only one person that has ever been essential to the building of God's kingdom, and that is Jesus. So, The chief priests, scribes, and elders, they wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the people because Jesus was pretty popular at this point. And they rightly perceived that this parable, this stinging rebuke, was against them. And so they left, and then they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to lay another trap for him. And that's where we go next. 
verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, this is sort of an enemy of my enemy is a friend situation because these two groups really did not get along at all. Um, The Pharisees obviously supported the Jewish way of doing things and the Herodians supported the puppet king that was placed over uh, Judea. Um, That's not the first time that we've seen these groups together, by the way. Back in Mark 3, verse 6, uh, when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, they started colluding together. There's really not too much that we know about the Herodians rather than, other than that they were supporters of King Herod. They were possibly informants for King Herod. They were suspicious. Uh, is Jesus going to cause an uprising here? Is he going to threaten our power? Um, Luke refers to them as spies. And it seems that they uh, decided that having the illusion of a little bit of power and authority was more important than building God's kingdom. So... As you see in the text there, their question really is dripping with insincerity. (laughs) I think that's pretty obvious as they come up and say, oh, you're the best teacher and we know that you are true, but we're trying to trap you and so we can arrest you. So the tax that they're referring to here is either the poll tax or a head tax and it was levied on every Jewish male in Judea regardless of any property that they owned and it was required to be paid with this Roman coin, the denarius. Now, the zealots re- flat out refused to pay this tax, and there was actually an uprising about that. Um, the Pharisees did not agree with this tax. They questioned if it was even legal according to Jewish law, but they went along with it because they didn't want their kingdom be, to be too upset. And the Herodians obviously su- were in support of the tax, and they paid it, no problem. So they come up with a simple question, and they think, okay, well, this is a win-win situation for us. Because if Jesus says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, that could contradict the tenets of Judaism and could cause Jesus to lose the support of the people, threat averted. If Jesus says, no, we shouldn't say pay taxes to Caesar, then he's going to be reported to sedition. Either way, it's a win-win situation in their mind. But of course, Jesus knows their hypocrisy. He knows their motive, and, he's, and he answers them in a way that does not fall into their trap. So he asks them for a coin. Now, the coin we are talking about would have on the front had a, an image of Caesar. It would have said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Augustus, and Augustus meaning mighty, so son of the divine Augustus, but Tiberius Caesar. And on the back of it, it would have said, high priest. Now, This coin is actually against some Jewish laws and commandments. They were forbidden to make graven images, and they were to have no other gods. And the fact that the Romans viewed that their leaders actually as divine presented a big problem with the Jews. 
But he answers them in a way that is very simple yet very profound. He says, okay, well, who does this image or who does this coin belong to? It belongs to Caesar. Well, then pay things to, our, to Caesar that belong to him. But pay, there is a higher authority and you need to give to God what belongs to him. See, the thing is, the image represents the owner and the image on the coin is Caesar and he owns the coin. And so it's your responsibility to pay the coin to him. If you're going to agree to the Pax Romana, the peace that Rome provides you from invading armies, then it's your, your responsibility to pay the tax. But there's also responsibility to give to God everything that belongs to him. And what belongs to God? Everything. And if you remember back in Genesis, it says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So if God, is on, if God has created us in his image, then all of our lives and everything that he has given us belongs to him. These words that Jesus says, this short little thing where we wish he would have gone into great detail of what it looks like to live under civil authority while being a part of God's kingdom, these words that he says got twisted at his trial in Luke 23, where they said that he told them not to pay the tax. And so they break another commandment by bearing false witness against Jesus. So the Herodians, and I would say the Pharisees too, they worked to secure their own little section of the kingdom, even though it came at a great cost and suffering to them. So the mindset of building this kingdom is, I want my own little piece of the kingdom, or I want each aspect of life to be separate. And so we don't say this quite so explicitly, but we either say, oh, I'm just going to keep this. God can have most of my life, but I'm just going to keep this little bit of the kingdom for myself. Just, I'm, I'm deserve, I deserve a little bit of that kingdom. Or we say, well, God can have this little part of my kingdom, but he can't have all of it. And the result of building this kingdom is you are going to be split between the two kingdoms every day. And it's going to, again, if you're successful in separating out these kingdoms, it's going to lead you to pride And when things collapse, it's going to lead to anxiety. I can just tell you from experience that this isn't going to work. When I was in grad school, I tried to keep, ooh, this little separate aspect, my academic life. And I've got my little church section of life. And those two never need to connect. And then there were times when they came close to each other and I was like, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to respond because I never wanted these two kingdoms to interact with another The point is that God is over all. He's over everything. There's no separating out the little different parts for your kingdom. But this is actually really good news for us because, I don't know if you know this, it's an election year and things are tense in our country and both of the main political parties leave so much to be desired. And yet... God says that there is a place for rulers, but that he is over all of them. And so remembering this already but not yet kingdom, that he is over all, should give us great comfort and hope. And so the people, everyone marveled at him because they thought, oh, this very obvious trap, he's going to fall right into it. And he successfully avoids another trap. And like like clockwork, a new group comes with a new question, and the Sadducees decide to set their own trap. Verse 18. 
And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. But the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now before we get to Jesus' response, we should take a minute and just understand who the Sadducees were. I appreciate that they just kind of get right to their question. They don't bother with trying to butter up Jesus first. They're just direct and right to the point. But this is the first time that we see the Sadducees mentioned by name in Mark. And not a lot is known by them. Um, It's possible that their name comes from a word that means the righteous ones, or it means uh, from Zadok the priest from the Old Testament. Um, But they completely disappeared after the temple was destroyed. So there wasn't a, a lot that's known from them. But what we do know from them, from the Bible, is that they only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as scripture. And they had a very narrow view of interpretation of what that should be. They did not think that the oral tradition of the prophets was legitimate. And they also denied the resurrection of the body, the immortality of the soul, the existence of spirits and angels, and divine predestination. So it almost makes you wonder how they even believed in God at all. Uh, They also controlled much of the temple and much of society and were widely regarded as corrupt. So they come up with this absurd scenario based on Leveret Law, which, if you're curious, is from Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Um, and this idea, this idea is that if a man has a wife but there's no heir, then it's the duty of the, the next brother in the family to provide an heir, to continue the line. Um, there's the story of Ruth and Boaz would be along this lines where she has to find a kinsman redeemer after her husband dies. So their question is, okay, so... She was married to all of these different men in this lifetime, and then all of the men died. So when they rise again, how is that going to work? How, whose wife, whose husband is she going to be? The question is not really about marriage, and it's about resurrection. But because this question was asked, it, uh, it's clear that it didn't come just out of nowhere. And so that should bring up a question for us is what did the Old Testament have to say about resurrection? Because if we're reading the Bible in context, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. Jesus hasn't died yet. So if the idea of resurrection came from anywhere, it had to have come from the Old Testament. Of course, we know that resurrection is a central tenet of our New Testament theology. The word is used 41 times, but it's not new. So let's go to the primary sources. How did Jews think about the resurrection during this time? After Lazarus' death in John 11, Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Okay. Now here's where things get a little bit tricky and why it's so important to keep an eye on the whole of Scripture when you're reading it, because the, the Greek word for resurrection, anastasis, does not appear anywhere in the Old Testament. But the idea is definitely there if you are paying attention. A few examples. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. 
for your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or Psalm 16, or Job, or Ezekiel, or many other places in the Old Testament. So Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be told that I'm quite wrong by Jesus. So here's a pro tip for you. If you're trying to establish theology on eternal life, don't go to a law on marriage. That's the first point. But Jesus has two main critiques of them. He says, you don't know the scriptures that tell that resurrection is going to happen, and you also don't believe that God has the power to raise people from the dead. So even though he could have appealed to all of those places that I mentioned from the Hebrew Bible, he meets the Sadducees on their own terms, and he appeals to their beloved Torah to say, this is where the idea of resurrection came from. He says, do you not know the story about Moses? You seem to talk an awful lot about how you love Moses, where God where God reveals himself to Moses, and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for over 400 years. So he could have said, I was their God when they are alive. But when he says, I am the God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, that tells us that they are still with him in some form, even though they have long since passed. The Sadducees could not believe that this was possible. They couldn't even conceive of life after the death because they just thought, well, it just means that we're going to be coming back to life and it's going to be exactly the same as it was before for us. And so, because they couldn't believe that, they became entirely focused on building their own kingdom and they were obsessed with accumulating wealth and power and status and authority. See, the mindset of this kingdom is that my kingdom is all that matters. This is all there is, right? This is all there is. Hashtag YOLO, if you will. This is all that matters. Again, we don't say this so explicitly, but we live it out every time that we turn to sin. We, we forget that there is eternity of life, and sin is so appealing to us that we don't even care in the moment. The result of building this kingdom is that you're going to live with a mindset of scarcity. You're going to be greedy. You're going to be full of anxiety as you wonder, do I have enough? Do I have enough wealth? Do I have enough power? And ultimately, it's going to lead to emptiness. The main idea here is that there is a resurrection life because God says that there is. Because God does not lie or break his promises. Jesus replied to Martha after he asked her about the resurrection. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
All the treasures that we hold dear in this life are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in Christ at his coming. Because the resurrection is not simply a resuscitation and a return to the status quo. It is a complete transformation with a completely new purpose. There's not going to be a need for marriage anymore because there's not going to be death anymore. And there's going to be a new purpose where we are worshiping Christ. So, if we try to build our kingdom if we try to section off our kingdom, or if we try to uh, take control and say we're building God's kingdom but doing it in our own image, we are all going to fail. So what are we supposed to do? Some application for us today. First, pay attention to the kingdom that you are building. Your default is not to be building the kingdom of God, unfortunately. Your default is to build the kingdom of self. So the bad news which is also the good news, is that if you are building the kingdom of self, you're on a collision course with the kingdom of God because God's not going to allow your kingdom to stand when it's at odds with his kingdom. But the good news is that though he may crush your kingdom, he will not crush you. If you allow me to put on my biblical counselor hat for a minute, every kingdom has a master and every kingdom has a mission. If you are the master of your kingdom, your mission is going to be building your kingdom, and that is going to lead to fruit. What kind of fruit is that going to lead to? Mostly rotten fruit. If Jesus is the master of the kingdom, the mission is building his kingdom, and that is going to lead to abundant fruit and life. See, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, that means my kingdom needs to go. Second, to be in line with God's kingdom, you need to know the Bible. How else are you going to know the master and the mission of the kingdom? We want you to read the Bible to understand God's redemptive plan from the very first pages of the Bible through the end of the Bible and continuing until now. We want to see how the kingdom of God has been coming in this upside down and surprising and subversive way whereby the cornerstone that was rejected now becomes the most important thing. We want each of you to be biblically literate as well because the world is going to be telling you to build your kingdom, and the world is going to be telling you loudly. Somebody's going to be telling you how to build your kingdom, and if it's not the Bible, it's going to be the culture. And so we want you to be able to think when you are presented with something, what does the Bible have to say about this? Or what is a biblical way of thinking about this? Because if you're only spending just a few minutes in the Bible each day, it's not going to be enough to know how God wants his kingdom built. And the good news is anybody can develop these skills. You just need to do it. You just need to read the Bible and reread it and ask questions and ask for understanding and pray to God and ask him to reveal what the text means because he loves to reveal his will to his people. Do it in community. Do it with a friend. We are always better when we are processing through these hard questions together. And finally, we need to remember that the kingdom builds, built by God's power will have no end. Our kingdoms are liable to crash <laughs> without even any conflict at times. Um, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. And it's so good news. It's such good news to remember that. 
But I also want to say that it is not an individual project to build the kingdom of God. It is a community project to build the kingdom of God. And so if you're not in God's kingdom, or if you're not sure if you're in God's kingdom, we invite you to ask questions and come talk to us. But it's important to be in community and remind each other of God's power and the fact that he is the one who gives us the power to build his kingdom. Because Jesus has already done the work of dying on the cross and paying for our sins, and he is empowering us. The Spirit empowers us to build God's kingdom. So, the kingdoms of this earth rise and fall, but there is a kingdom that lasts forever. In Daniel 7, amidst this terrifying vision of these bizarre creatures, Daniel is left with immense hope as he sees the Son of Man. Now, if you'll remember, the Son of Man is the main way that Jesus refers to himself, uh, and that comes directly from the prophecies in the book of Daniel. And so it says... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so we're left with two choices today. You can build your own kingdom and suffer the consequences. If you want a life that's full of pride and anxiety and emptiness, you are free to make that choice. But if you want a part of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken, then put your faith and trust in the one who is Lord over all and get to building his kingdom in his power. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we admit how quick we are to build our own kingdom and how much we need the reminder and the hope of your everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. May we go out building your kingdom this week. May we rehearse the power of your kingdom as we celebrate communion today. And may we, be, may we leave this place full of resurrection hope. In Jesus' name, amen.